Well, that was the opening music to The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, released in 1939, and starring Basil Rathbone, who we're doing a little festival on here, and uh, Nigel Bruce, who were both in the Hound of the Baskervilles, which we just reviewed. Uh, Ida Lupino, a very young Ida Lupino, I think this was this was one of her first movies, I think. Oh, it had to be, yeah. She looked like she might be 18 or something. <laughs> yeah, she looked very young. Um, Alan Marshall, who, I think he played the brother, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, he, he was the, uh, he wanted to be friends with uh, Ida Lupino and Brandon. And uh, Oh, he, he was he, sort of the one who was like romancing her, yeah. And we were, we were never sure just what his role was in this whole thing. Right. He was the attorney. And we can't forget George Zuzuko as Professor Moriarty. The evil Professor Moriarty. We were just saying before we started recording that he, we felt like he needed to be a little bit more evil. <laughs> Dr. Evil. <laughs> Dr. Evil. Gentlemen, in exactly five days, we will be $100 billion richer. <laughs> <laughs> I was always I'm wondering uh, if Lionel Atwell, who played Dr. James Mortimer in The Hound of the Baskervilles, might have been a little more evil. But he, he always had trouble reining in his his overacting. <laughs> he might have he might have gone too far the other way. <laughs> Uh, I thought I thought the person that played Inspector Bristol, E.E. E. Clive, was pretty was pretty entertaining. Yes, he, <laughs> yes. very much so. He kind of just went along with what uh, Sherlock Holmes told him to do. <laughs> he was so glad when he learned that Sherlock would be helping him. Oh, Mister Holmes, I was just coming to find you, sir. Have you seen the body? He was strangled to death, sir, just as you and I thought. So now I'm going to arrest this fellow, Hunter. Take him down to the yard. I can really question him there. And I thought perhaps you'd like to come along, sir. No, I think not, Inspector. Dr. Watson and I are going across the way to take a look at the scene of the crime. You'll be wasting your time, sir. My men have already covered the ground. Well, we'll just take a look all the same. Incidentally, Inspector, if I were you, I shouldn't arrest Mr. Hunter. In any case, not now. And I shouldn't question him any further. Why not? Well, it won't get us anywhere. He won't talk until he's ready. But anyhow, you haven't a case against him yet. Why not leave him at large? Have him watched and see what happens, for a day or two at least. Hmm. You've always found my advice pretty sound, haven't you, Inspector? And it's got you a lot of attention in the newspapers. Then you'll work on the case, sir? In the usual way? In the usual way, Inspector. I'll do as you suggest, sir. Good. Come along, Watson. Sherlock makes him look better. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net. Or on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash classic movie reviews. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from North Bend, where we're expecting a lot of snow this weekend, supposedly. Ah. I'm feeling a little bit teased, though. It's like they keep they keep teasing it, and, and it doesn't happen. So we'll see. It'll probably be later today. This is Bob. Yeah, uh, we'll probably get four feet. Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where we've had some rain, nice rain overnight. And looking forward to a bit more today. 
welcoming everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews and the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, which was released over the Labor Day weekend in 1939. I was unavailable to attend, but had I been, I would have gone. <laughs> this was the second in a 14-series uh, set of films uh, about Sherlock Holmes starring uh, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. The first two at 20th Century Fox and then the last 12 at Universal. And I think as I watched the film today, thinking about it again, the 20th Century Fox, the two that they did, had a had a, a better production value and I think a bigger budget. And it, looked, it, it feels like they took a little more time to uh, to uh, make the make the picture and put it together, but they're all good. I, I I've watched all fourteen of them, and uh, I would watch them over and over again. I watched the House of Terror, which was which was pretty. You good. You discovered the radio shows. Yeah, the radio shows with uh, Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce are on YouTube. It's like a twelve-hour video, but it's got all the episodes. You can just listen to them back to back. I I think they uh, paralleled the radio programs with the. Uh, with the film, and then when uh, Basil and Nigel ended their uh, run on on uh, in the films, the radio show was taken over by another set of actors. I think it continued. Oh, okay. I think it continued on after the films. Uh, I've, I've listened to most of those way back, <clears throat> maybe fifteen years ago, ten years ago. They're fun. I misspoke about Ida Lupino and having this be one of her first movies. This was her twenty-fourth movie. Really? <laughs> she must have started yeah. in the silent era. She started in 1931. Just at the beginning of sound. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. She would have been in her early 20s. Or no. Gosh, let's see. She was born in 1918. 21. Yeah. She was 21. 21, early 20s. Boy, she was an icon of success in the film industry, being the uh, only the second woman director at the time she uh, moved into directing long and and uh successful career one thing just this is really a a simple aside the poster for the film the the big one that was uh used with the theatrical release Ida Lupino doesn't look anything like the woman that's uh, portrayed in that painting i just it's it's a disconnect for me they needed a different artist yeah there's a couple of them on imdb and and there's only one of them that actually looks like Ida Lupino. <laughs> yeah, the, but the, the ones that are painted, they really, really don't look like her. That's odd. Well, uh, let's see. Who have we forgotten? We got George Zuko. Oh, George. He did 96 films, and I'm sure everyone will remember him from The House of Frankenstein in 1944. <laughs> he was good at playing these parts, variations on the same theme. There's actually two stories going on here in this film. And I think this was based on a, a stage play. That's what I read, yeah. The first uh, part of the film is a, is a plot by the evil Moriarty to distract Holmes and Scotland Yard. Uh, and it involves the, the death of uh, Ida Lupino's father and then the murder of her brother. And it's kind of a, uh, a sideshow to the main theme for Moriarty, which is he wants to steal all the crown jewels of the British Empire. Starts off with a trial of Moriarty and he's he's just been released and 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 then the door bursts open in the courtroom and and Holmes comes in he says you can't release him I've got the evidence that proves <laughs> yeah. that he murdered you know and it's like the judge is like well you're too late. You're too late. You're 
your timing's bad. And then they take a cab ride back, and I think the cab was driven by one of Moriarty's henchmen, right? Oh, yes. That guy was... Yeah. He was everywhere and always bad. They have this conversation of... 221 Baker Street first. Very good, Dad. After you, my dear Holmes. By no means, I prefer that you precede me at all times. Probably too bad that you are. You've a magnificent brain, Moriarty. I admire it. I admire it so much, I'd like to present it pickled in alcohol to the London Medical Society. That would make an interesting exhibit. Holmes, you've only now barely missed sending me to the gallows. You're the one man in England clever enough to defeat me. The situation has become impossible. Have you any suggestions? I'm going to break you, Holmes. I'm going to bring off right under your nose the most incredible crime of the century, and you'll never suspect it until it's too late. That will be the end of you, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. And when I've beaten and ruined you, then I can retire in peace. I'd like to retire. Crime no longer amuses me. I'd like to devote my remaining years to abstract science. Well, here we are at my lodgings. I'm so sorry I can't ask you in. Good night, Professor Moriarty. Good night. Yes, he wants to send, he wants to pickle his brain in alcohol and exhibit it at the London Medical Society. And Moriarty agrees it would be quite an ex- impressive exhibit. He's quite full of himself as they as they go along. And then we we cut to a scene where Moriarty is is going back to his apartment, his house or whatever, and and he's all upset because the flowers died, and then he gets all really angry with the butler, and he's just saying awful things to the he butler. He was always mad at and the it, butler. You wanted to see me, sir? I'm away for a few weeks, Dawes, and I come back to find my anthurium magenta, my incomparable anthurium magenta, withered, ruined. I can't understand it, sir. I took good care of all the plants. Did you I... water them? Every day, sir, just as you told me, sir. Then how does it happen that I find a spider's web spun across the spout of a watering can? Oh, well, that can happen overnight, sir. Overnight, huh? Then you didn't water them today. Well, there's been so much to do, sir, preparing for your coming back. Nothing all... is as important as the care of my flowers. Through your neglect, this flower has died. You've murdered a flower. Oh, I, I'm sorry, sir. And to think that for merely murdering a man, I was incarcerated for six whole weeks in a filthy prison cell. A pity, sir. A travesty on justice. Quite so, sir. But for this crime, Dawes, you should be flogged, broken on the wheel, Drawn and quartered. Yes, sir. Will that be all, sir? And boiled in oil. Thank you, sir. Go away. Yes, sir. Yeah, but the thing is, it doesn't come across to me as him being like an evil person. It just comes across to me as him just being an a-hole, for lack of a better word. He's just not a nice guy. Not a nice guy. And then he basically gives away the plot for the rest of the movie. Don't take me wrong, Professor. I'll do what you tell me right enough. I'm sure you will, Basic. And just to prove how I trust you, I'm going to tell you my plan. Although you haven't the imagination to appreciate its subtlety. My whole success depends upon a peculiarity of Holmes' brain. Its perpetual restlessness. Its constant struggle to escape boredom. Holmes again? All was Holmes until the end. He's like a spoiled boy who picks watches to pieces but loses interest in one toy as soon as he's given another. So I am presenting the ingenious but fickle Mr. Holmes with two toys. 
the order in which I mean him to have them. The first, that letter. And if I know Mr. Holmes, that will interest him very little. After this comes to fascinate and tantalize his imagination. Blimey, what's it mean? That is what I'm depending upon to absorb Mr. Holmes' interest when I'm engaged elsewhere. I'll give him a toy to delight his heart. So full of bizarre complications that he'll forget all about the first toy. That letter. What's in the letter, Professor? The germ of a crime, Basic. A truly great crime. A crime that will stir the Empire. The children will read about in their history books. And you're going to be part of it, Basic. Off with you now. It reminded me of those supervillain, superhero, supervillain movies where they have the uh, they have the uh, exposition where they kind of tell you everything that's going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then you just kind of watch it unfold. He was he, every time he encountered his butler, he was rude and and uh, mean spirited to him. But but his plan, his first plan, uh, takes place on one of the foggiest days I've ever or nights I've ever seen in London. Oh my where gosh, Where yeah. brother takes off. I think his name is Billy, isn't it? Billy, yeah. And Billy is followed by uh, Alan Marshall's character, Gerald Hunter, because he's keeping an eye on him. But he's very unsuccessful at that because Billy gets uh, murdered in this park. And uh, his his brain, his skull is crushed. Never a good thing. Before that happens, though, we get that scene with Ida Lupino begging Holmes to please help Oh, him. yes. I don't know what you must think of me. But I'm sure I was followed here. You are Miss Brandon? Yes. I'm Sherlock Holmes. Yes, I know. Let me introduce you to my associate, Dr. Watson. How do you do? Sir Ronald Ramsgate. Mr. Holmes, I... I... Well, uh, I've, I've got what I wanted, so I think I'll be going along. Good day, Miss Brandon. Goodbye, Doctor. Goodbye, sir. May hat and stick, Sir Ronald? Thank you. I'm depending on you. I'll not fail you. I'm sure of that. Goodbye, sir. Goodbye. <laughs> Yes, Miss Brandon? Why, well, I shouldn't have written you as I did, Mr. Holmes, and then burst in in this melodramatic way. But I had to see you. Oh, that doesn't matter, Miss Brandon. There's no more resolutely informal household in all London than mine. You're very kind. Not at all. Only I don't understand why you wish to consult me about a garden party. You couldn't possibly find a worse guide to social etiquette. It's because my brother and Gerald Hunter, he's the family solicitor, insist on my going. And I don't want to. I don't want to. Yes, but uh, how should I know how to advise you, Miss Brandon? Perhaps you should do as your brother and family solicitor suggest. Lady Conningham is eminently respectable. No. Oh, Mr. Holmes, I... I'm so frightened. What are you frightened of, Miss Brandon? Murder. Sit down, Miss Brandon. Now, suppose you tell us all about it. Well, this came from my brother Lloyd in the post two days ago. Hmm. This seems to be a field day for crank messages. Look at that, Watson. Hmm. Curious? May the 11th. That's today. My father received just such a note before he was murdered. Murdered? Murdered. Ten years ago on May the 11th. Scotland Yard couldn't make anything of it. But I saw him. 
My father, lying there on the pavement, with the back of his head off. Now tell me, Miss Brandon, do you associate May the 11th with anything else besides your father's death? I mean, perhaps with some other incident in your family history? No, no, nothing. My family has no history. My father was a self-made man. I see. Oh, Mr. Holmes, you must save my brother. Don't let them kill him as they did my father. She wants advice whether she should go to this party, and, and she's gotten this really weird letter with this man that has a, a drawing. It's a, it's a picture, it's a hand-drawn picture of a man with this goose around his neck, like hanging from his neck. It's an albatross. Strange. But an albatross. Oh, was it an albatross? An oh, albatross, right. yes. The, the bird with the 10-foot yeah. wingspan. That's right. And there's some, Holmes is like, there's got to be some meaning to this. And you can just see his brain trying to figure this out. And, and you know, this is all part of Moriarty's plan to distract uh, Holmes because at the same time, he also gets a visit from the port commissioner or somebody like the port commissioner who's asking him to please come over on Saturday to help with the unloading of these jewels. Yes. Just have a look at that. Uh, doesn't it strike you that the handwriting is... Yes, yes. And that's because it's written with the left hand. Star of Delhi will never reach the Tower of London. Hmm. Curious and anonymous. What is the Star of Delhi? Probably the largest emerald in the world. A gift to Her Majesty from the Maharaja of Rapua. Oh, I shouldn't worry about this, Sir Ronald. A typical crank letter, besides no professional thief would risk stealing so famous an emerald. He can't break it up. He certainly couldn't sell it as it is. Perhaps not, but in my position of trust, I can't afford to take any chances. I wonder whether you could possibly manage to be on hand when the jewel is delivered. Now, when will that be? This weekend. It's coming on the cruiser Invincible. Well, Sir Ronald, even though I'm convinced that the threat means nothing and that a routine police guard will be quite adequate, you can depend on me. Thank you. Now I feel sure the jewel will be safe. <laughs> Little enough to do for you, Sir Ronald. <laughs> He seems very uninterested in that. Seems like that's just beneath me. And well, we can't you just get the police? And he's more interested in this strange uh, letter and and this woman that comes in, played by Idol Lapine. Well, plus he's he's plunking away on his piano, his uh, violin. And yeah. Oh, trying to find the perfect note that will drive the flies crazy, so that he can get rid of the flies in his apartment. The only person <laughs> that's being driven crazy by that is Doctor Watson. He's ready to hit Holmes over the head with the violin. Gee whiz. Holmes is easily distracted. It's subsequent to watching this, I watched another uh, Sherlock Holmes movie. The Private Lives of Sherlock Holmes came out in like the, I think the 1970s or early 80s. And it's very good. It's very different. It, it, it takes you behind the scenes of his life and uh, his use of the needle. All right. That was so. That was so strange at the in the last episode where you pointed that out. That was that was a real in comment. You'd you'd really have to know about Sherlock Holmes to pick up on. I know it's a, the movie so far up to that point where there's that murder at the park. It almost feels like there should be an element of the supernatural in this movie, almost like a superhero movie where Holmes is the superhero and Moriarty is the evil villain. Or if Moriarty had been even more evil, and maybe he was the supernatural force. Something to spice it up a little bit. It's a well-done film, and it's a well-done detective film, but it just didn't quite have the the uh, the drama and suspense that maybe we were looking for. I think uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles has much, much more of that. 
in the way it was put together. Yeah. I think watching it right after The Hound of the Baskervilles was a little bit of a letdown because The Hound of the Baskervilles is so well constructed to build up that tension. And this one, I, I think, I was thinking about this this morning, like how, what was it about this movie that just kind of didn't do it for me as much? And I think if they had cut out that exposition at the beginning where Moriarty gives away the plot, basically gives away the entire plot of the movie in the first five minutes, it would have been more interesting because then you would have been in Sherlock's shoes trying to figure out like, well, what is going on with this weird letter? And maybe he should go over and help with the crown jewels. For me, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is just kind of like meaningless because really he's totally on the wrong track you know he's he just the whole time i was thinking he's totally on the wrong track of what's really going on one of the things i did like about the film among many and in fact the whole series the partnership between holmes and watson is done in a much more uh, mature way and uh, when con- uh, when i contrast it with some of the other films that came out at that time that were detectives like the falcon or the saint uh, or Bulldog Drummond, <clears throat> their their partner or sidekick was always kind of a bumbling comic relief to the to the uh, intensity of the brilliance of the main character. But in this one, it was it was much more. Uh, they were equals, although Holmes at times made everybody know that he was really the smartest man in the room. You remember that scene um, right at the park where they're trying to figure out what happened at the park and, and Watson lays down in the street? Yes, yes. I say there, has something happened? Definitely. Sir. Would you mind moving back a few paces? Uh, not at all. Thank you. Perhaps I can find a doctor. I'm a doctor. What's the matter with you? I'm all right. I was thinking of you. Why? But aren't you ill? Certainly not. I'm dead. Well, I'm afraid I must be getting on. Don't let me detain you. Cupid fellow. And the guy gets this look on his face like, what is going on? <laughs> he continues on his journey. That affected his entire day. He asked, he asked Watson if he needed a doctor, and Watson said, I am a doctor. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I'm over overstating it. I like the movie. It's just that I think it just was not as entertaining for me as the first one. And but everybody that was in it, like Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Ida Lupino, uh, even George Zuko, I thought did a good job. I mean, it was well acted and directed and great production value. The uh, the director Alfred Worker was born and raised in Deadwood, South Dakota. A hotbed of film production, I tell you. Wasn't there a TV show called Deadwood? Yes, and uh, and Alfred did a lot of films. He did 60 films as a director or assistant director. A favorite of mine is one that he did in 1948 with Richard Basart called He Walked by Night. It's kind of a documentary-style film of an actual situation that happened. Um, and even in that film, a lot of the plot is given away in the early part of the film. So this may mm. be the director's style. I don't. I don't know that because I, I can't. I don't know that I've seen other films that he's made, but that was certainly the case with He Walked by Night. What the intention is is to set it up 
early in the movie and then as an audience you get to kind of see how it unfolds you know so you, you kind of know what's going to happen but you don't know how it's going to happen and and then i think you you want to try to root for sherlock holmes to try to f understand that he's being played by moriarty and he finally gets it near the end right he finally kind of yeah. figures out oh this was all just a distraction and i i've got to get to the tower of london there was quite a bit of tension at that part of the film. Well, it, also when I watched this uh, and all 14 of the films, having seen Robert Downey Jr. as Sherlock Holmes, the pace and style is so different. It's just mm -hmm. when when, uh, when the new Sherlock Holmes are made, it's nonstop action and and uh, oh, yeah. it's really well done. So this one is is just a much more leisurely pace compared to those but still very good a spooky part for me though was after um holmes and watson are doing their little detective work in the park um back in the apartment of Anne brandon who's played by ida lapino she hears that really haunting music that's played on yeah that, uh, flute and she looks out the window and, and sees there's somebody out there playing this music and then she screams and then that guy runs and get, jumps on the cab that's driven by Moriarty's henchmen. That scene where Holmes asks her to recall the tune was really spooky. And then Holmes is back at his apartment in the next scene trying to figure out what that tune was. And he figures out it's an ancient Inca funeral dirge. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. How did he figure that out? There... Only, <laughs> only Holmes could do that. Yeah. And it connected it to South America. And, and then it gets tied in even more by... One of the murderers uses this, I think it's called a bolo, to do the murder of the Billy. Bolo, yeah. And that's a South American instrument as well, or weapon. I'm a little, I'm a little confused on Billy because I think Billy was play, was that young boy that was kind of cleaning up and helping out around Holmes's house. Oh, not her, not her brother. Yeah, but there was. Um, You're right. Lloyd Brandon. Okay, Lloyd Brandon played it by Peter Wiles or, or Willie's. Wills. Wills, I think Not it's sure Will. Wills. Wills, Peter Wills. He's the brother. Billy is played by Terry Kilburn, and Billy is the young boy. And there's that funny scene where Billy's expounding on the foot and the chinchilla foot, and it could only have come from a couple of these South American countries. And what's that, Mr. Holmes? Hmm? Yeah, that's a chinchilla foot, Billy. Chinchilla? Yeah, you know what a chinchilla is. Yes, Mr. Holmes. It's a little animal that grows in South America, and its fur is very expensive. Ah, you should remember that, Billy. It'll save you a lot of money when you grow up. May I look at it, sir? Uh, yeah, yes, certainly, Billy. Yeah. Well, what do you make of it, Billy? Lummy, I'd like to have one of these. They must bring you lots of luck. Well, why do you say that? 
Well, I bet in Chile or Bolivia they carry around a chinchilla's foot for good luck, the same as we carry a rabbit's foot. <laughs> you hear that, Watson? My hearing is in no way impaired, thank you. And you think that the man who lost this comes from Chile or Bolivia? Yes, sir, because that's the only places chinchillas grow. There, Watson. What do you say to that for a simple deduction? I've listened to sea shells that made better sense. Why do you waste your time like this, Holmes? Half the women in the world own chinchilla rats. You exaggerate, Watson, and half the women in the world wish you didn't. No, Dr. Watson. You see, they make the coats out of skins. Oh, really? Yes, sir. And the only place you could get a chinchilla's foot will be where the chinchilla lives. <laughs> there, Billy, there's sixpence for you. Now me a tenner. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you, Billy. Thank you. I don't know why you let that insufferable little brat come in here. <laughs> I was pulling your leg, Watson. Merely relaying to you through Billy certain observations which may or may not coincide significantly with what I found. You found something? I think so. I've identified the death music, Watson. The melody Miss Brandon played for us last night. It's an ancient Inca funeral dirge, still used by the Indians in the remote Chilean Andes as a chant for the dead. What on earth has that got to do with Professor Moriarty? Or the Star of Jelly? I wouldn't know, Watson. I really wouldn't know. Watson is so just like over it. Like, why do you keep Billy around? Like, this is so weird. <laughs> Well, I need to apologize for Billy because I I had him murdered, and he's not the he's not the murdered one. It's uh, Lloyd that was murdered. Anyway, Lloyd was murdered by a, a South American weapon. We yeah. find out that a guy named Mateo was the uh, was the guy that did that murder. So Moriarty's reach was into many different uh, areas and had lots of different people involved. And throughout the film, I kept thinking that. Alan Marshall as Jared Hunter was was somehow a, a, another henchman of Moriarty, a more sophisticated one. But uh, I don't know. Just you know, remember when he was meeting with Moriarty in his law office, and uh, yeah. it left me with the impression that they were planning something together. Yeah, and he always was kind of cagey. And there's something that he wouldn't tell um, Anne Brandon's character about, and she was trying to get him to open up about it, and he just wouldn't. She kind of had it with him, I think, because cause they were they were supposed to be together as a couple, and he was h hiding something from her. That hap that happens in several of the old movies that we watch, where somebody has a secret and they won't tell somebody else, and it may maybe it's a medical thing, maybe it's something in their past. Them yelling at the screen, just tell them what it is. <laughs> Get it out! Not just old movies. That's like the plot of every drama TV series. If people would just communicate and tell each other what's going on, there would there would be no TV show. <laughs> it might hurt the plot. They'd have to come up with a different mechanism. So we 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 realize that that uh, Lloyd has been murdered and Holmes is on the case. And, and then we go to that garden party and that wonderful singer comes out with all those songs and all. Everyone delights to spend their summer holiday Down beside the side of the silvery sea I'm no exception to the rule, in fact, divide my way I preside by the side of the silvery sea But when you're just the common or garden smith or Jones or Brown At business up in town, you've got to settle down Just save up all the money you can till summer comes around Then away you go to a spot you know Where the cockle shells are found oh, 
like to be beside the seaside. I do like to be beside the sea. I do like to stroll along the prom, 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 where the brass band plays. So just let me be beside the seaside. I'll be beside myself with glee. For there's lots of girls beside. I should like to be beside, beside the seaside, beside the sea. And guess who? I had to watch that scene twice because the first time I watched it, I did not know it was Basil Rathbone. They totally fooled me. I know. It's revealed that it's him. I was like, no way. So I rewound it and, it, and yep, I could see that it was him. And it was an even better disguise than the the uh, hermit in Hound of the Baskervilles. He must have loved doing that, that scene because he was singing and dancing and he looked like someone completely different who was it who was a lifelong member of the vaudeville set. Well, and it must have really utilized some of his stage performance capabilities. He just looked like he was having a blast. Yeah. <laughs> he that, that's my, I think that's my favorite set of scenes in the movie is at that garden party. I don't even remember what his name was, the singer. He's on the job there as well, undercover, and he knows that something's going to happen. That's kind of where things come to a head because uh, Gerald, I think, gets targeted there doesn't he like he's going to be killed or or i i forget they're running through the forest though and and it's like that guy with the bolo is after him yeah yeah mateo is after him after them and i think that they need to get idol Lapino out of the way to further that part of the the distraction and it really pulls uh, holmes away from the main action which is going to take place at the tower of london but he has sent watson over there yeah, so that's where we kind of get the two things going on at the same time because now we've got this heist happening over at the Tower of London. I kind of get the setup because Moriarty is shaving and he's getting all in this disguise to be a police officer. And so then he shows up at the Tower of London with these other henchmen who are all pretending to be police officers. And he says that he's been sent by Holmes. They, they missed the key part of that part of the process of securing that, which was having somebody who knows both parties you know like this guy just shows up yeah. and he says i'm a police officer and home sent me and they're just like okay <laughs> watson tries to question him and, and uh, everybody sort of said why are you doing that he's he's obviously a police officer what is the time police officers to see dr watson sir bring them in about time dr watson here yes I am Dr. Watson. Sergeant Bullfinch, at your service, sir. Good evening, sir. May I see your identification, sir? I told you, I am Dr. Watson. I don't doubt that, sir, but the inspector said I was to be particular about identification, sir. Well, you seem to be a law-abiding citizen. I suppose you'll be wanting to see mine. Yes, please. Everything seems in order, Sir Ronald. So he uses the power of the uniform to kind of get his way in there. And then as that's going down, I think there's some stuff going down with Holmes and the other part of the story where he realizes that uh, Moriarty has shaved and that he kind of puts the pieces together that he's, he's going to be over at the Tower of London and he needs to 
get over there too. Yeah, he almost is too late, but he, he makes it. There's a series of events that happen to where it looks like the crown jewels were robbed, or, or these, these jewels that were being brought into the country were robbed, but but really, it was, that was another distraction within a distraction because he, he Moriarty just made it look like they were robbed, but then kind of dropped them just outside of the where the jewels were kept. And then it kind of set everybody at ease, like, oh, thank goodness, you know, we, we, we kept the jewels. And, and, actually, and, and then we find out that Moriarty was actually hiding in the cage with the jewels. Yeah, wouldn't you think the police would leave a couple people there? Yeah, they all left like, oh, we're done here. It's all it's good. All good. Cool. Or, or at least like check check around <laughs> the the rest of the jewels and make sure that everything's good. Uh, and then Moriarty is like a kid in a candy store. He's got he's got all the crown jewels. He's got everything. He's got this bag that oh, he's I filling know. up with all this stuff. He's he's dismantling the the crown and taking the diamonds and it's just like he's going crazy in there. And then uh, while that's happening, Holmes is furiously on his way to the Tower of London and, and they crash uh, the handsome. And, and uh, I'm pretty sure it is Watson who is sort of distracting the guard while um, Holmes sneaks around because it's so foggy they don't see him. And then it's a duel kind of between uh, Holmes and Moriarty. And I, I thought this would have been a perfect point for like a, a sword fight. Yeah. <laughs> Another another Basil Rathbone <laughs> sword fight. We need we needed a Basil Rathbone sword fight as Sherlock Holmes. It would have been. I wonder perfect. if he missed that. Oh well, and this <laughs> is one he could have won. You oh, know, totally, could have won, won this, won this one, anyway. one. But they struggle and they battle back and forth, and those scenes were well done. And then um, Moriarty uh, falls and and goes over the side of the tower and, and presumably is dead. He falls into the fog, and we're never yeah. sure what happens, what? but he does come back in later films, so he must have landed in the moat or something. <laughs> like, or like a cat, he landed on his feet. You know, this, this theme that comes through in this film with the two plots, when I watched The Private Lives of Sherlock Holmes, there were two plots in that, and they were really quite distinct. I don't know if that... I, I haven't read enough of the actual... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle books to know if, if that was something that he did or not, but I've, I've seen it now in a couple or three of the films. Well, even like The Hound of the Baskervilles, there's kind of two plots. There's the there's the plot of the supernatural hound in yeah. the ghost story, and then there's the actual thing that's happening, which is this guy who's a distant heir trying to bump off the Baskervilles from Canada. So, yeah. But the, the thing is that it can be well done. It's just, I, I feel like... In this particular case, I would have liked it if it would have been a little bit more mysterious of what was going on and not so much exposed at the beginning of the film exactly what Moriarty was going to do. Imagine what this would have been like if it had been done by, say, Alfred Hitchcock. Ooh. It would have been... Yeah, what if Hitchcock had done a Sherlock Holmes movie? It would have been quite different. Quite different indeed. Or John Huston. (laughs) Or Ida Lupino. What if she directed it? Or Ida Lupino, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) So then we... Anne, get, Anne gets married. He, yeah. She does marry Alan Marshall's character. And then we go to a scene where uh, Holmes and Watson are in a restaurant, and there's a fly. And, of course, Holmes gets out his violin and starts to play that awful <laughs> song to, to scare the fly away. And Watson picks up a newspaper and just swats the fly, just right there, bang. That's the end of the fly. 
Watson, always, always the pragmatist. Just, just kill it. <laughs> Looks at Holmes at elementary, my dear Holmes. Elementary. Well, Anne Brandon, 21, and Gerald Hunter, 29, were married this morning at the Caxton Hall Register Office. <laughs> well, that takes care of that. But I still don't understand how young Hunter became involved in the mystery. Alfred, may I borrow your violin? Certainly, Governor. I said I still don't understand how young Hunter became involved. Perfectly simple. Whatever Gerald Hunter did was done to protect Miss Brandon. But I saw him myself closeted with Moriarty. My dear Watson, I expected even you to see through that trick. Moriarty went to him with a trumped-up lawsuit to put us off the track. Those flies again. Very effective, my dear Watson. Elementary, my dear Holmes. Elementary. <laughs> That's ranked as one of the top... 100 movie quotes of all time. Yeah, in this movie, they actually do say that elementary, my dear Watson. They actually have that line in this movie. Yeah. And I love that Watson turns it around. I do too. And then we fade fade out. I I, uh, give a rating on this of a seven. I always like Holmes and Watson. They're always a 10. But uh, I I think the film lacked the kind of punch and and, uh, drama and suspense that it could have had with a little different setup, as you've mentioned, with not so much of it given away at the beginning. So I, I go with a seven on that. Yeah, I really like some parts of it, and I love the, I love Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, and Ida Lupino did a great job. I was probably gonna say it was like a six for me, so I think I'm gonna stick with that. But the, um, I just read that uh, on the trivia page for IMDb, it says, uh, what can only be seen in retrospect as mishandling by Fox, the film was relegated to second bill status upon release and considered a failure by the studio, which canceled its planned series of Holmes adaptations. Oh no! So it was it was it was 20th Century Fox that canceled it. Well, that that can happen, I guess. Universal certainly cashed in on it. The way they made those with those tight budgets, I'm sure every one of those films was a financial success. Well. Well, they knew how to make a movie, you know. They really made a lot of great movies in the 40s and late 30s. And they were really budget conscious, Mm -hmm. bottom line conscious. I think, is the the next one that we're going to watch, Universal? Uh, Let's see. Son of Frankenstein? Now, we have two coming up, Son of Frankenstein and The Mark of Zorro. And I think The Son of Frankenstein is a Universal, and The Mark of Zorro is a 20th Century Fox. I could be wrong. Mm. I could be wrong. So Rathbone was able to move back and forth more like a, an actor today. With the, He didn't have a contract with just one studio. I'm looking at the poster for The Son of Frankenstein. Lionel Atwell is in it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the... You remember the uh, Mel Brooks movie, Young Frankenstein, with the police chief? It's it, That police chief is modeled right after Lionel Atwell's character in The Son of Frankenstein. Oh, perfect. To a T. It's probably Universal. Yeah, it's a Universal movie. And then The Mark of Zorro, I think, is 20th Century Fox, if my memory... I can remember some things, and I can't remember some of the plots. So anyway, we're doing, for our next podcast, The Son of Frankenstein. Yep, and then The Mark of Zorro. The Mark of Zorro. And then The Elevator to the Gallows. And then we decided we're going to do Star Wars, right, for the 200th? Star Wars, the original... This is our 200th episode from 1977, which actually, in the way it was set up, is episode four in the film, right? 
in the film series? Yeah, which I thought was so interesting because uh, when you see the movie for the first time and you see that it's episode four, you're like, wait a minute, did I miss the, the first three episodes? Yeah, I had to. F- <laughs> it creates an air of it creates an air of mystery around the movie right at the very beginning of the film. It's the first one that came out, but it's the fourth one in the series. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought it was a pretty brilliant move by George Lucas to to say, okay, I'm going to make these series of movies and <clears throat> I'm going to pick up the story right in the middle of like this bigger thing that I have in my mind. Yeah. And uh, I know that he and everybody involved in the movie wasn't sure if it was going to be a success and so they weren't even sure if they could make another one. And they had written, George had written a treatment for a screenplay that was a fallback plan uh, in case oh. Star Wars didn't do well, he still wanted to make another movie, but it was going to be a super low budget one, just to just because he he wanted to keep making these movies. And of course, we know that it was a huge success, and they went on to you know make billions of dollars from this franchise. But and then he made a, a boatload of billions of dollars when he sold to Disney. Wow. Yeah. So. We'll have lots to talk about during that episode for sure. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. We liked it, uh, but we, we didn't move to the top of the tier, no. <laughs> that was our review of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt. And here in Los Angeles, this is Bob. Wishing everybody happy movie watching. <laughs> get our second shot next thursday at 10 30. oh good that's awesome that's really good news and then we'll be we'll be immunized hopefully you won't have too many bad side effects from it it's a little it's everybody says it's a little more irritating than the first round yeah that's what i've heard too i didn't have any problem with the first round so we'll see i got star wars from from netflix i'm going to watch it this weekend I enjoyed. I remember going to that with you and Ben and Deborah at Cinerama in, in uh, Denver in the summer of '77. The place was packed. That's cool. And then when that original, the the stuff scrolled out on the screen, you know, the the introduction scroll it was a, it was just perfect. I was like, and then that huge ship flew over. Wow! I was like, I'm hooked. Yeah, so cool.